Good afternoon. You are listening to Don Land Signals on WERU-FM. Don Land Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change here in the Don Land. We explore topics such as restorative justice, restorative practices, decolonization, cultural revival, and more. Our guests are people involved in aspects of truth, healing, and change work. This program is offered in an effort to share, inspire, and inform. Dawn Land Signals is a collaboration of Wabanaki Reach and WERU-FM. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard. Good afternoon. I am co-host Esther Ann. Some of Maine's most beautiful islands, summits, and brooks are marred by names that are offensive to Black and Indigenous people and perpetuate centuries-old historical harms. Similarly, many of the state's roads and even some of its towns and counties are named after enslavers and slave traders. As name-changing initiatives gain momentum around the country and the world, Maine's Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Tribal Populations works with communities throughout the place now known as Maine to address these problematic place names. And so um, Maria's gonna do a land appreciation before we welcome our guest uh, and I'll introduce our guest, Meadow Dibble. Thank you. Let's just take a moment to pause and to acknowledge the land beneath our feet. Wabanaki, the land of the first light, the dawn land, land that has known Wabanaki ancestors, the tallest trees and the oldest rivers, land that has known peace and conflict, land that has nourished us and sustained us since time immemorial. We acknowledge the indigenous peoples of this land, Wabanaki, the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Mi'kmaq, Malastik, and Abenaki, and we give thanks to your stewardship and resilience. We're down with them now, all my relations. We are broadcasting from WERU studio in Blue Hill, Alamusic, Wabanaki. Molly one Maria. So I'm so excited today to welcome Meadow Dibble as our guest on today's show. She is the Director of Community Engaged Research at Maine's Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Tribal Populations. And she is the Founding Director of Atlantic Black Box, a nonprofit devoted to research and, and reckoning with New England's role in the slave trade and the econo economy of enslavement. She is currently a visiting scholar at Brown University Center for the Study of Slavery and Justice. Meadow received her doctorate from Brown's Department of French with a focus on post-colonial studies and taught Francophone African literature at Colby College from 2005 to 2008. Originally from Cape Cod, Meadow lived for six years on Senegal's Cape Verde Peninsula where she published a cultural magazine and coordinated foreign study programs. In 2016, Meadow experienced a brutal awakening to the reality of her hometown's deep investment in the global slave economy. And ever since she has been researching complicity among, among Cape Cod sea captains 
while developing the Atlantic Black Box Project. Um, thank you so much for being here, Meadow. Um, so glad you agreed to do the show and uh, tell us about LD1934, a new law that bill in the state of Maine. Well, thank you so much, Esther Ann, for that um, generous introduction. And Maria Gerard, um, it's truly an honor to be here in conversation with you both today and, uh, and exciting to be able to share with your listeners um, some news about this initiative uh, that is being spearheaded by the Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Tribal Populations. Um, the, the law, uh, 1934, uh, that was passed in the last session of the legislature. Um, and it's, it's really an extension bill. Um, it was sponsored by representative Rachel Talbot Ross, um, uh, following on from LD 1591, not to get too into the weeds, but 1591 was, um, uh, was a bill that um, came out of uh, an, <laughs> Representative Talbot Ross's own brutal awakening um, in 2020 to the reality that there remained in Maine, attached to beautiful geographic features, islands, um, summits, etc., um, racial slurs. Um, of of the most violent kind that she believed her father's bill from 1977 had eradicated effectively, and yet in 2020, um, uh, she happened to learn that no, in fact, there were still islands in Maine bearing the N word in their name. There were other uh, geographic features that bore the name Negro. Uh, in fact, many islands, brooks, summits um, uh, bear the, the name Negro. And that, um, that is because back in 1963, the US federal government, um, in an effort to eradicate the N-word from all geographic features around the country, um, it, it passed sort of a blanket, um, it, it made a blanket measure to convert all places with the N-word in their name to Negro. Um, and so that was in 1963. That should have, that should have done the job here in Maine. Um, but, uh, but, uh, what Representative Gerald Talbot, um, discovered, you know, in 1976, is that that had not been completely effective in eradicating this terrible slur. So his bill came to sort of finish the job. And yet what we've seen over and over again here in Maine um, is that legislation is not enough. And these, these sort of measures, whether um, from the U.S. federal government um, or at the state level, um, have been insufficient. Um, it was in 2000, um, as I'm sure you're aware, that uh, Donald Saktoma passed a bill um, 
that uh, was an act um, to prohibit the S word, uh, a derogatory term um, for indigenous women um, here in Maine. And uh, in that case, again, it, there, was a, there was a blanket sort of eradication, all geographic features bearing that, um, that term were meant to have been eradicated and yet a couple slipped through the cracks so that even today, there are S word, there's an S word island um, and there are a couple other features that remain. So here we are in 2022, um, faced with this reality that um, these dehumanizing words, um, as, as you said, Esther, mar this beautiful landscape. Um, and this is not just a question of political correctness or, um, or semantics. This is, this is a matter of, of human rights. Um, the, the fact that these words are attached to, to, to places makes those places unwelcoming um, to the, um, the Black and Indigenous people um, who are targeted by them. And um, so I'll, I'll pause there. What I find so interesting is how tenacious people are to hang on to these um, racial slurs, these, these names with the, these racial, even innuendos. So I, I had heard about the 2000 bill, um, you know, with Donald Sartoma, um, to, to rid the offensive place names in the state of Maine, but I hadn't heard about 1963 with the U.S. federal government, and then again in 1977 um, with Rachel Tennant Wilson's father's um, bill, and then again in 2000, and then here we are again in 2022. Hmm. It's, it's astounding the, the amounts of times that we had to really address the same issue. I um I like what you said, Meadow, about this is not a matter of being politically correct. And even the title, right, offensive place names, it, it's about more than just somebody being offended because, you know, that leads into then you shouldn't be offended or you're not offended. I'm telling you that you're not offended. I'm telling you that you're honored kind of thing. And so I, I'm glad you said that because it, it is about... Um, I like one term I heard you talk about before called place justice. And I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about that in, you know, LD 1934 in terms of place justice. The, the permanent commission um, has now responsibility for, for carrying out the, the work connected to this bill. Um, and we're really taking that as an opportunity to um, while fulfilling the the mandate, um, you know our statutory obligations as de, as defined in the bill, we're really looking to uh, do do more than that to really approach this work through a truth seeking lens. And I do want to um, say that my understanding of um, truth seeking initiatives and truth and reconciliation um, commissions. Um, has been um, deeply uh, 
you know, affected by working with you, Esther, um, and your, uh, you know, the, the community that you have brought together to help uh, the Permanent Commission design um, a process uh, and a method that can really serve to inform all of our work um, so that everything that this commission does, um, because it is devoted to rooting out systemic racism uh, through policy work, but also through um, working with uh, impacted communities, especially um, that everything we do be done precisely through this ethos of truth seeking. Um, and, and so, you know, I'll just say personally, you know, arriving here um, in, in the Domland, in the place we call Maine for the third time in my life, um, arriving here, settling here um, just a, a couple of years ago, one of the, um, one of the first um, experiences I, I had was um, I I saw Donland um, and uh, was introduced to this concept of uh, the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, that and the that process that had taken place here and was just so deeply moved. Um, so I I, I want to center that and just say you know how inspired I personally have been by the work of Wabanaki Reach um, and all of your um, community connected to, to these initiatives. And then, um, and, and just underscore for your listeners that the work of the Permanent Commission um, has been deeply enriched um, by, by, by all of that, following your example and your lead. Um, so, you know, yes, we, we have, um, this work ahead of us to eradicate and help communities in this process of eradicating and replacing these offensive names. But beyond that mandate, um, what can we what can we do together to really shift um, paradigms here um, to shift consciousness so that communities are um, are not trying to hold on to names um, just because they have always existed and said this is tradition, this is this is uh, this is part of our landscape, but to really come to a place of, of willingness to question um, how these names came to be um, and what just simply what happened here. Um, it's a it's a it's such a basic question, but it's one that I find um, here in New England, um, we, we do not ask enough um, what happened here. And going, so going all the way back, um, I, I think that the, the work around um, this place justice, by, by framing this work as place justice, we have an opportunity to really um, roll, you know, roll back through history and um, to try to understand what we're seeing in the present, what its, what its roots are in the past. Um, and those, that, that the history, Black and Indigenous history here in Maine, as elsewhere in New England, 
um, is too seldom researched. It is not um, taught in our schools um, as it should be. Um, and so we have a tremendous amount of just research to do. Um, and here I'm going to sort of put on my Atlantic black box hat. And um, because, because what we're all about is in, in encouraging communities to sort of pick up a shovel and start digging and, and ask those questions themselves, say what happened here in our community and, and specifically um, read history uh, through the lens of race, racial history, um, what, what happened here, what aspect of our story, of the narrative, you know, have we been leaving out? Um, and, and so that's essentially what we're, we're proposing um, to do is engage with communities around those questions. You are listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU-FM. I'm your co-host, Esther Ann, along with Maria Gerard. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And we're in a wonderful conversation right now with Meadow Dibble, um, talking about the eradication of offensive place names and place justice here in what we now call Maine. Um, and I... <clears throat> I get excited when I think about place names like Wabanaki place names and how they were rooted in, in a lot of, there's a lot of wisdom in those place names. I mean, they tell, you know, they tell you about that place and what you need to know. Um, and I, I get excited when I think about the possibility of maybe through this project or, you know, seeds that are planted that somehow children are able to, uh, participate in some kind of process to get to know the land and then, you know, places that need to be renamed, maybe, maybe the children are involved in, in doing that. Um, it's, it's exciting when you think about it. I love that Esther. And I think, I think that's absolutely right. We are called as human beings um, today um, more than ever um, to rethink our relationship to place and uh, all of us. And, um, and we have not been living in right relationship with place. Um, and to really center that, you know, place justice, what does, what does that mean? It, um, I, I hope that um, through this work, we can encourage um, people broadly to, to do just that, um, and in particular, you know, young people, um, we, there are some wonderful examples um, that we've seen of, uh, for example, there's a school in Brookline, Massachusetts that was named after an enslaver. Um, and so there was an awareness among um, uh, a couple of the teachers that, um, that the name should be changed. Uh, but, but there are best practices, one could say, um, related to uh, changing names that are um, offensive, derogatory, or dehumanizing. And, and, you know, chief among them is to bring into the conversation those most impacted, those most harmed by the offensive names, um, so that, you know, you're 
um, it's not a predominantly white community or overwhelmingly white community just saying, hmm, let's um, let's maybe call this, um, I don't know, um, you know, name it after a, another European settler, um, some such. Um, so that, you know, in terms of best practices, that's that's number one. But then I think really, um, as you were suggesting, Esther, engaging young people in this process um, is, is definitely among uh, the practices we recommend. So at the school in Brookline, um, the teachers um, had students research who were the, um, the people of African heritage who had lived in that community of Brookline, um, whose histories were not being told or taught. And the students did this research with the help of, of local historians and teachers. They did the research and then they ran a campaign in the school. Um, they chose, I think, five or six different individuals. They did presentations and then they, um, they shared the information these students did with the rest of the student body and they held a vote. Who, you know, who do you think we should rename the school after? And so that was a, a wonderful learning process. Um, so much was accomplished, you know, because rather than um, sort of shrink in shame um, because, you know, oh, we've got this school named after an enslaver, the, there was, um, you know, a, a very open-hearted, wholehearted um, process that was engaged to say, okay, we have a problem. Um, and this, this name is doing active harm. And we need to change it, but the how of changing it is is just as important as the act of changing it. Um, and so I, I love that example, and I think that um, communities in Maine can do the same. There was um, there was an island off of Booth Bay um, that bore the name Negro Island, and the residents of that small island got together and decided that they were uncomfortable with that, and they changed the name but they changed it to Oak Island. And now um, it's named after a tree and, and that's lovely, but the history has been effaced. No one will look at that island on a map or, or, or go there and think there were, perhaps there was a community of African descended people on this island. I wonder what their story was. It's just, it's gone. And so part of this effort um, is to say, yes, we need to change these names, but we need to research the history of how the names came to be. And then we need to go through a process together as communities at the local level with the guidance of, of others um, at the national level, um, with, with the guidance of scholars, with the guidance of um, people who uh, from the impacted communities um, to come up with names that will reflect the history of the place um, and inscribe that history there, but in a, uh, in a way that is um, inclusive and not, um, not exclusive. I'm really enjoying this this conversation. And um, a little bit earlier, you had talked about that leading question, what happened here? 
And um, as a Penobscot historian, that really appeals to me. And, you know, often I find myself traveling the landscape of Wabanaki. And I often say that being a Penobscot historian here in this place um, is often a blessing and sometimes a curse because of how I view certain places here in the state. I think about um, uh, Mattawamkeg Point, which is uh, upriver on the Penobscot. And there's a road there and it's called Indian Point Road. And that actually is the location of um, an old settlement um, of Penobscots. But in our history, um, that was also the site of one of the largest um, wildfires in the state. And the, the history goes that um, the state agent wanted to acquire that land and went to the Penobscots on a couple different occasions to treat with the Indians, to make a new treaty with them. And because it was refused, that, that area was considered one of our most esteemed um, fishing uh, areas and hunting and a, a place of meeting where the where the Mattawamkeag River converged to the Penobscot at that point and it's where our chief lived and so you know when I I've gone there and I've visited that place before and it just feels so sad to think of the community that was the community that got torched and burnt to the ground because they didn't want to give it up and, it, you know, it, in the old descriptions of how it was, you know, planted with all this corn and people would gather there. And it was like this, you know, this meeting place between Penobscots and, and the other tribes could could reach it there. So it's, it's in my mind. And another place is um, that weighs heavy on me is in Castine because of the signage that exists there. And, um, you know, there's there's some signage that I think belongs to the Historical Society in Castine that um, that references our Grand Chief Madakawandu and you know in our language Madakawandu is a person of you know real spiritual influence and, and powers and, and how demeaning that that signage is um, you know to his existence and so um, I was wondering if this effort um, this place justice ever, if it would address um, signage or historical facts or things of that sort. Maria, thank you for that question. And there's so much there um, that uh, I, I want to come right back and, and ask a couple questions of my own because I, what an opportunity to um, have a, a historian here um, to weigh in. So let me just say that we're at the early stages of defining this, the scope of this initiative. And I would like to welcome you and all of your listeners um, to, to share your thoughts about what this place justice initiative could and should be um, if we're to do it right. Um, so the um I want to come back to to the the term so you were talking about Indian Point, and I was just in the um, u s 
geographic board of names database. Um, and I just did a query uh, for Indian and uh, places with bearing the name Indian in Maine, um, just out of curiosity. Um, th- this is not currently one of the um, words that is that is deemed problematic. Um, but I um, I do have have um, some questions ar- around that and um, and the you know so back to Castine. Um, Castine has been at the I know exactly the sign that you're talking about. Um, I was stopped short myself when I was I was driving around this lovely little village um, and um, happened upon this horrific historical marker. And I took a picture and I thought, how could this be allowed to stand? It, it Later, um, in, in talking with some folks in Castine, I learned that it had come up a couple of times at town meeting. Should we get rid of this? And the town answered no on a couple of occasions. Um, then, uh, so parallel to that, um, there is uh, there there was someone coming through town, a summer visitor, um, who was shocked to see that there are two islands at the mouth of the Bagaduce River, right there in Castine, uh, named Upper and Lower Negro Island. And um, and he filed a petition with the United States Board of Geographic Names and said, those names are offensive, they should be removed. I'll just note that um, the term Negro, um, you know, there, there are people um, who's certainly, you know, there, there are people who do not consider that term to be offensive. Um, it continues to be used. Um, we might talk about Negro spirituals or, um, uh, you know, there are big organizations that still bear that word in its name. But if you look in the dictionary, the Merriam-Webster or any other dictionary, you will find that it is considered offensive today. Um, and, that's something folks um, I think need to understand is that sensibilities do change um, over time. And so at the time the US government made that sort of blanket substitution of um, Negro for the N word at the time, um, that was a preferable term. Now in 2022, it it, it is considered deeply offensive to most. Um, So, um, so this petition was filed um, by this this man, you know, who saw these islands in Castine, um, and and what happened then is uh, the folks at the federal level got in touch with the municipality and said, uh, "You um, have a petition to change these names. This now at the local level, please come to some kind of determination about this." And so um, Castine has been in a process ever since. It's been, I believe, about a year and a half at this point. Um, They've been, as a community, grappling with this particular um, situation. First, there was a town meeting to decide whether or not to change the names. And I I heard that this was happening, um, and I decided I I wanted to be there in person for this, this meeting. I can tell you um, there was not a single person of color at that town meeting um, where this was being decided. And the vote, um, 
So the the proposition passed with a very narrow margin. It was, I believe, 44 yes to change the names to 33 no, leave them be. Which is to say it could have easily gone the other way. And and again, so Maria, to your question about the, the signage, and we've seen, right, that, that this has come up um, a couple of times and the community decided we don't need to address it. We don't need to do anything about it. Well, I do um, believe and, and my colleagues agree that this is one of the roles that the Permanent Commission can play is to help communities understand that no, in fact, we do need to address these this um, offensive signage, the offensive mascots, the offensive names attached to both um, natural features um, and names attached to buildings, streets, etc. Um, and so, creating a um, an environment where um, it is now the norm to uh, to deal with these issues and there's sort of um, there is momentum behind that and there is guidance as well in terms of best practices and how to navigate the sometimes confusing system you know um, of you know of officially changing a name and such. So I, I guess that has me um, wondering, um, you know, who's who determines what's offensive? So it sounds like um, there's some suggestions from the commission, um, and then it goes to the the towns um, for some decision making, correct? Because I know when I was sharing the information about um, Indian. Point Road and Matagamon, and you, um, you know, mentioned that you had, you conducted a query about the word Indian, and I think that, um, you know, you could ask a hundred people if Indian's offensive, and you're going to get, you know, several different answers. Just people that might say that it is, people that say no, it's not, um, you know, and um, I'm just curious how you see that playing out. And also I can't help but think about, um, you know, the change of the mascots on the national level with the, the Cleveland baseball team and how, you know, that came up and now they are the Cleveland Guardians. So people were concerned about the erasure of um, the involvement of Penobscot, Louis Sock Alexis playing for the Cleveland used to be Indians, so spiders, then Indians, and now guardians. Um, and so that concern about erasure and who determines what's offensive and what's not. Yeah, um, and before you answer, Meadow, I, I was wondering the same, Maria, and thinking, you know, like Indian Point could be place where Native people were, or it could be the place where scalps were brought in, you know, <laughs> where they were exchanged, their body parts were exchanged for money. So it, it, it does matter what happened there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I should have done this at the very outset, but um, uh, better late than never, I am a white woman, um, <laughs> uh, you know, from New England, descended from 
um, enslavers. In fact, I, I not too long ago discovered um, that um, at least a, you know one line of my family um, were enslavers um, in Connecticut, and um, and so in terms of who should decide. Um, I, it, it certainly shouldn't be me. Right. Um, and my participation on this project and my deep commitment to this work, um, generally is not, um, it's not unproblematic. It's, it's deeply problematic. Um, but at the same time, um, I, my commitment is steady because I believe fully wholeheartedly that white people need to be, um, well, I actually think white people um, should be doing this and only this, um, in, in a sense. There's um, this work of, of, of research um, and this work of uh, reparations and repair. Could I interrupt you for just one minute? I'm getting so into this conversation that I forgot to say. You are listening to Don Land Signals on WERU-FM. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard, along with co-host Esther Ann. Dawn Land Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today, we are talking with Dr. Meadow Dibble about place justice. I'm sorry, uh, you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, so back to your question, you know, who decides what is offensive? Um, the the bill 1934 um, creates an advisory on reconciliation in place names. Um, so that is um, that is sort of step number one is to um, ensure that the the right people are at the table and um, helping um, you know br bringing their lived experience and, and professional expertise to bear on precisely this type of question, what constitutes an, an offensive name? Um, I can say that um, when, when you study the evolution of legislation regarding offensive names in Maine going back 40 years, and as we've said, four through four bills, um, what you see is that, um, that you know, defining offensive um, has, or whether the defining it, you know, too specifically, too narrowly, or defining it too broadly, this leaves room for, can I say, bad faith um, sort of efforts to undermine the intent of the bill. So there was actually, um, after Gerald Talbot's bill and then after um, Donald Sakhtoma's bill, there was actually a, a sort of a corrective bill um, that uh, said this time it was um, uh, an attempt to uh, have the intention of those previous bills respected um, so that the, you know these efforts couldn't be dismissed on technicalities, procedural um, excuses. So I think that's really important, right? That so, um, you know, indigenous uh, people, um, African-American um, scholars, community members, um, people uh, who are, uh, you know, connected to civil rights um, and restorative justice initiatives, um, uh, young people, elders, um, 
these are the folks who should be on an advisory helping to um, determine, you know, for, you know, uh, in the first instance, what is offensive. Um, And then, uh, and also, you know, I think acknowledging that, again, sensibilities change over time and, um, and the communities who are, who have been harmed, the racialized communities who have experienced harm over the centuries um, are the ones who should uh, always um, be making those determinations about what is offensive. Um, it, Meadow, it, it strikes me that the process, like you said, the process is just as important as the result. And I, that's been my experience um, with these kind of things, truth seeking and truth telling. Um, and, and it strikes me that if communities engaged in, you know, this digging that you talked about, digging into the history, finding out what happened and reconciling who they are and who they want to be and what they want to, um, it seems like just the act of doing that first would lead to them, you know, getting um, a greater understanding for place justice and a, you know, a greater motivation and not just being about something being offensive. Because like you said, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily about because because you know I'm not an African American person, but seeing a town named for a slave owner is offensive to me because it's a you know it's it's um it's dehumanizing to people and and lifting up people who do harm is not not one of a value that I subscribe to and not knowing like I didn't I didn't even know that these towns were named after slave slaveholders mm-hmm. so um enslavers is the the correct term right mm-hmm. so I, I see a lot of value in people learning the history and i and i have faith in in humans i guess that once they learn that because i've seen it happen with the you know don land and the truth commission you know people learning about this history and and them being able to then come to it on their own that geez this needs to be changed so have you seen it work both ways? Yes, um, I, I agree. And um, so when it, you know, when it comes to this work, the place justice work um, spearheaded by the permanent commission, we're still early days. Um, we're really at the outset of this initiative. Um, but I, I certainly agree, Esther. I have seen that um, to, to be true in my work with Atlantic Black Box, where people, when they, you know, it's like history has to hit home. For for, for most um, white people um, here in New England, you know, when you talk about slavery, it's it's going to, it sounds remote geographically, it sounds remote in time. uh, And there's this sense that it's just sort of this you know, the, well, that wasn't us. You know, we had nothing to do with that. Um, I think Frederick D- Douglass had a, a famous speech. You know, what have we to do with slavery? Um, as he was, uh, he he was giving voice to the typical New England response uh, to to Southerners. Uh, well, it turns out everything. Uh, New England was deeply involved in 
the slave trade and the economy of enslavement. Um, and in fact, you know, our communities, not just our coastal communities, but the inland communities that were settled um, by uh, people of European descent, those uh, were also, uh, they were, you know, whether, whether you were growing grain or cutting timber or you were fishing uh, or you were um, making hardware uh, or you were building vessels, all of those trades, those different industries, early industries were all tied up in the economy of enslavement um, because those goods were being shipped down uh, when they weren't, you know, being shipped across the Atlantic to West Africa um, to use, you know, as currency in, in purchasing enslaved Africans. They were primarily being used in trade and traffic with the um, plantation culture, uh, uh, forced labor camps of the West Indies that just covered those Caribbean islands end to end. Um, and, and then, you know, in exchange, it was sugar and it was rum. I mean, it was sugar and it was molasses that were being um, brought back to New England. Portland, you know, was uh, sugar was one of our principal imports here in Portland. Um, and that was then being distilled and converted into rum, which again, it, it fueled this Atlantic world slave economy as it has been known. And so um, the scholars will say, um, you know, in this emerging field of scholarship about New England's deep complicity with slavery, that uh, it is absolutely um, our our entanglements with slavery that fueled the economic ascent of New England through the 18th and 19th centuries in particular. And uh, that, it, that fact, you know, it, the fact that is well known um, among scholars is very little known uh, among, you know, your average New Englander. And so we have a tremendous amount of research to do. Yeah, I I, I think of um, Chief Poland being killed along the riverbank and in Westbrook, you know, because the Westbrook dam they they dammed up the river so they couldn't fish, and how that is connected to all of this. Yeah, jeez, it's heavy stuff. It really is, and. Um... I, I was curious, I had to step away for, for just a minute, but I was thinking about, um, you know, that that idea of people's willingness to do better. And, you know, I've often said that I think people are doing the best that they can based on the knowledge that they have, but that they just don't know. Um, and I'm thinking that, uh, or what I've, I think I've, noticed over the years is that people are more willing um, to change here in this state because so many people are now coming from out of state. And so they don't really have this 
vested interest in hanging on to like an ancestor's legacy or something like that. Um, and so just, just a observation about the changing dynamics of our state. And I know I've encountered that a lot with, um, you know, meeting people after presentations or um, what have you, who are from away and they are just appalled to hear some of the history and, um, you know, they're not really attached to it. They don't have a need to hang on to something. Um, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. I've, I've seen the same um, phenomenon I, because ultimately, um, you know, I, and I hear people say a lot, like, why, why, like, ask the question, why are folks so resistant to this um, sort of, you know, this history of, you know, our, our connections to, to slavery and um, to, you know, oppression and extermination and um, genocide? And why, why do people resist it um, so much? And, and I, I think that what we haven't, you know, explored enough or discussed is just like how deeply, um, and speaking as a white person again, you know, our collective sense of identity is wrapped up in this mythology um, of we were on the right side of history. We were the good guys. Um, we have so um, just absorbed uh, the, 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 the myth of sort of moral superiority, um, and, and, and really kind of taken hook, line and sinker, um, the celebration of a maritime culture without just even, you know, asking some basic questions We're we're just very attached to, you know, the, this sort of hero worship, whether it's the, you know, the pilgrims on the Mayflower or the founding fathers. Um, and so it's that uncritical celebration that is just so problematic. And, you know, one of the things that I think um, can really be effective in um, bringing change is when you ask people to, to just say, um, okay, uh, you know, what happened here? What happened in you, do you live in a in a beautiful old 19th century home? Um, uh, what happened in your home? Who built it? Um, where did that wealth come from? Um, what happened at your church? Were there enslaved people, you know, sitting up in the balcony? Um, what what happened in your town? Was there a forced who whose land was this? Uh, you know, how did it come to be acquired? Um, and so, you know, really asking people to ask the most basic questions, um, and, and really to make the familiar strange, as you were saying, Maria, you know, because for, for people coming in from outside, they don't necessarily carry those heavy myths with them. It's not so bound up with their sense of individual and collective identity. And it, it's easier to get that sort of critical distance. Um, but for, for, for those of us who were born here and just um, seeped in this mythology, um, we have to make, we have to find ways to make the familiar strange. Um, 
and and just say, wait a minute, I actually don't know anything about my hometown, the place I thought I knew best in the world, and just have the humility to sort of start from scratch. I, I wonder too if having these people from PFAs, people from away, right, come in here helps the people from here realize, you know, they're, they're not in a bubble anymore when, when other people are coming in and saying, you know, what well, this isn't right. Um, like you going to Castine and seeing that sign. Um, so maybe it's helping. I don't know. I guess I'm an optimist. Maybe it's helping the locals kind of see a different perspective. It, you know, um, Rebecca Sockbees and uh, Penobscot Scholar talks about, and I don't think this is her words. I think she's crediting, uh, talking um about another scholar's words when she talks about lovely knowledge versus difficult knowledge. And we encounter, we encounter that a lot with indigenous people. You know, a lot of people are, they want the lovely knowledge, the, the Indian name and the, the drumming and the singing, but the difficult knowledge and how they are in relation to that and how they fit into that and how they're going to be as a human, knowing that is, is harder for people to, to in, engage with so I love I love that terminology um, and how she uses it like that and I was thinking about that earlier in the conversation when um, I think uh, we were acknowledging that the schools really weren't teaching um, this sort of history but uh, schools in the state of Maine are required to teach uh, Maine Indian history and culture in their um, classes but the teachers are really just doing the best they can with the knowledge that they have. And so often it's focused on, you know, um, beads and baskets and bones and shell heaps, you know, those sorts of things rather than those um, that difficult uh, history and, and how we were in this place together. Can so I ask? Oh, sorry. I was just going to say we have um, maybe about five more minutes. Um, oh, as to saying three more minutes. <laughs> so I just wanted to, to put that out there so that we can start thinking about um, ending the conversation. Do you mind if I ask you, um, Maria and Esther, um, what does place justice imply for you? What would you hope to see done under that banner? First thing that comes to mind uh, for me is just making peace with that landscape. And so, um, you know, earlier in the conversation, we were talking about, you know, researching uh, alternative history and renaming and, you know, who, who should this place be named for, but that the land has an identity and um, exists in and of itself without its relationship to people. And so, um, that it necessarily doesn't need to be named for another person, but just recognized for, for the value that it intrinsically has. So it's about making peace with the landscape. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, it, I think it's so important for people to understand how the land is the common denominator for everything i mean it, it's at the root of colonization it's everything was about the land um so and, and it's so easy for us to to not know that and take take it for granted in so many different ways and to not realize that that we need to change our relationship to the land because we're we are dependent on it like maria said 
the earth does not need humans, <laughs> but we need it. So, yeah. Thank you. Any, any final words, um, Meadow? I just want to express my deep gratitude to both of you. Really such an honor um, to be in conversation with you and, uh, and reiterate um, my hope that any um, of your listeners uh, will, you know, who have thoughts about uh, what this initiative could, should be, um, or who know of um, places that bear offensive names. Um, I want to encourage folks to reach out. Uh, I can be reached at meadow underscore dibble. That's D-I-B-B-L-E at brown.edu. And I welcome, um, I welcome all of your thoughts. Thank you so very much. Um, and so in closing, um, thank you, Meadow, for this, um, this conversation about place justice. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on Downwind Signals. Uh, as always, thanks to our volunteer technician, Jeffrey Hodgkiss, for his assistance and support. And be, be sure to join us next month and every third Thursday of the month for more Dawnland Signals and more conversations of truth, healing, and change. Stay tuned for more great programming here on WERU-FM. Minach Kanamiel. Afch Kanamiel.